Hey, everybody. Are you with me when I say life can be amazing at times, but it can also be extremely challenging? I know. I've been there myself, learned some valuable life lessons along the way, and now I'm here to help you. It's no coincidence you found your way to the Relevate podcast. I'm your host, Rena Olson, a self-proclaimed inspirer of others. Together, we're going to dive deep into raw and honest conversations with real people. My hope is that through these stories, you too will be inspired and ready to tackle whatever's holding you back or breaking your heart. Then you'll be free to live a life of purpose and true fulfillment. I promise it's possible. Let's Relevate. Hey there, I'm so glad you've joined me for the Relevate podcast. Today we are diving deep to talk about a very important yet difficult topic, mental illness and suicide. If you're like me, you know the heartbreak of losing a friend or loved one to suicide. If mental illness is something you're struggling with yourself, please listen to Heather's survivor story today on Relevate. Take hope, then reach out and let someone know you need help today. Friends, this one is very deep and intensely personal. Thanks to Heather and her openness and honesty to go there to discuss the demons she continues to battle. I'm humbled and really so blessed to have had this conversation with her and to now share it with you. Heather Palacios, welcome to the Relevate podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. And thank you so much for for hopping in here and saying yes to sharing your story. I'd love to know a little bit more about yourself and why you consider yourself a prodigal daughter. Yeah, I use that word prodigal daughter because <laughs> I mean it's a cop it's common vernacular to say prodigal son. Yes. Um, but I'm not a boy. So I had to mix it up a little bit. Prodigal daughter, you know, I accepted Jesus into my heart when I was a four-year-old girl and um, my parent, my dad helped me kind of navigate that prayer. But, um, you know, I, I left the home at college and just went my own way geographically and spiritually and relationally. And so just like the the parable, uh, it wasn't until I found myself face down in lots of, um, messes that I realized I needed to just come back home to the proverbial father, you know, not, mm-hmm. just, not my physical father, um, my heavenly father. And so, yeah, I, I really like, that's a great parable, but it's not, it's, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of prodigals that are girls out there too. So absolutely. <laughs> that's why I call myself a prodigal daughter. I love that. I love that. So you met your husband, Raul. I'd love to know a little bit more about him and how you both ended up in ministry. Well, that's kind of a funky story, too. Um, he, I, I had moved to Florida after college to kind of put my life back together again as part of my prodigalness. <laughs> and I needed to just kind of get away, start over. So I picked Florida because I hate cold weather. And I was now finally old enough to be self-sufficient. So I packed up all my junk in a U-Haul, drove to Florida. I knew like two people, um, but one of the two work was a pastor at a church. And I, you know, had worked out an arrangement with him to have that small little church hire me to be their bookkeeper because my degree was in business management. Mm-hmm. But I had no intentions of marrying anybody pastorally or even like, you know, 
like even a church volunteer. I mean, I came down here, I was like going to do the bookkeeping at the church because that's all I had, but I was going to find myself a nice hottie toddy in South Beach that I meet at a club and could booty shake like me all day long, but still, you know, do the nice good girl church thing on Sunday. Yes. Well, that didn't happen. I got to know some of the people in the church because I didn't know anybody else. I didn't have family, I didn't have friends, I didn't have neighbors. So um, in creating a beginning social life through the church, I started to meet the church people that included Raul Enrique Palacios II, which, by the way, he's 100% Cuban. And fun fact, I didn't even know like what a Cuban was uh, until I met him. So the, the, this is how we started off, is I was introduced to him, and I was like, so are you Mexican, Puerto Rican, like what are you? And he was, looked at me like death, and he said, I'm Cuban. And, and I've never, I, I'm like, got it, never make that mistake again. Okay, not that anything wrong with any other Latin ethnicities, but I think Raul really wanted me to understand he was Cuban. So Wow, proud yeah. of that. We, Yes. So anyway, long story short, we dated for about a year and then uh, got married and he he went from being a volunteer pastor to being a full-time pastor, which made me a pastor's wife. Nice. That's how, see, that's how, that's how God had to do it with me though. If God would have sent me a little text message and said, I need you to go to a Christian college and get an minister, I would have mm. been like, ah! yeah, right. <laughs> see how, see how God had to go like the long way, yeah. the long way around to get me to be a, in ministry. Yeah, he said a big old hook too, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He's like, I know how I'll do it. I'll do it through a man. That's how I'm going to get her in ministry. <laughs> a Cuban man. You you were in church, but but you were struggling. Can you share yeah. a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I was. I think I've always had a bend toward prodigalness. I don't take the easy way, and I don't learn the easy way. And so God just had to really be creative <laughs> with getting me to get back on the small and narrow road with him many times. Mm-hmm. You know, though we were in full-time ministry now, we were married and he was a, he, he was a pastor and I was a pastor's wife, but I was doing women's Bible studies and doing a little bit of speaking at, uh, you know, small events, a little bit of rebellion toward didn't want to be, you know... I, Susie Homemaker, who churns butter and knits sweaters and plays the piano. You know, there was just always something in me that was like, I can do this ministry stuff, but but I can't do it the conventional way. Mm -hmm. There was always a little bit of tension with that. Uh, I still, I still think that exists with with me today still, but it culminated into just finally getting to a point after a a year of dating and a year of marriage that I was like, I I can't do this. Mm. I, I know there's something wrong with me mentally, and I we can backtrack to the events that would lead me to that conclusion, but I knew a year into the marriage, not only was there something mentally wrong with me, but that I had gotten myself into a very bad spot now because I was married to a pastor, I needed to behave like a pastor's wife, and everything in me was screaming to get out, and that eventually just led to July 30th, 2000, where I decided to make a very calculated plan to just take myself out of the human race. I'm interested to know why you felt there was, there was no other, other way than to take your own life. Right. Great question. I, at eight years old, wrote a letter on my little butterfly stationery to my grandma and grandpa and mailed it without my parents knowing. And the essence of the letter was that I 
I wanted to, I wanted to die. It was, it was an eight year old suicide letter. Uh, and I fact checked this many times. I know that this is not just my, mm-hmm. you know, imagination. Uh, my grandparents have revisited that conversation with me and said that it was very hard. They didn't know what to do with that. They turned it over to my mom and dad. Of course, my mom and dad didn't know what to do with that because in 1981, there was no movements. There was mm-hmm. no conferences. There was no hashtags, nothing for mental health, yeah. much less suicide for an eight-year-old. Exactly. So um, my parents just did the best they could with that, but we moved on. And then at, you know, at 12 years old, at 19 years old, I would, again, um, write letters and want to take my life and twice tried to. But this time, not only did I want to get out of the situation I was in, I knew I had attempted suicide and failed before. And that had always made me mad. Mm-hmm. I was mad that I could not even be successful at killing myself. And it haunted me. And, you know, I was also an unmedicated, undiagnosed person dealing with these battles in my head, very vulnerable to the enemy because he knew that I just didn't even know what I had. So I couldn't give mm-hmm. it to the Lord. And just all of that culminated onto July 30th, 2000. And I was like, well, this time I'm going to do it. I'm going to succeed. And Raul will be able to find somebody that's better suited to be his partner in crime and in life. And so I called him as I was on my way to do the suicide. And because I didn't write him a letter, didn't want him to think that this was his fault. But he was able to keep me on the phone. I don't even know how. I, I really must, I just have to give God credit for that one because he was somehow able to keep me on the phone long enough to identify kind of where I was at. But by the time he showed up, I had already started in my car taking my life and he wasn't strong enough to stop me from what I was doing. So he had to call 911 and six first responders showed up and were unable to stop me from what I was doing. I liken it to the chapter in Mark with the demoniac where it says he was unrestrainable, uncontrollable and screaming. Um, and they couldn't, the, the, the community could not subdue him. And that was really kind of what was happening here. So they were, were forced to, go back to the ambulance as it's been retold to me and bring a tranquilizer, um, big honking device needle thing to me and knock me out cold, strap me down like Hannibal in silence of the lambs. <laughs> he strapped me down like in six different places onto the gurney, lest I awake and become, mm. de- you know, demonized again. I was like a rabid animal. They just could not tame me. I just, I don't know. It was just, a horrible scene, but uh, suffice it to say, they took me to the hospital where they treated my injuries, and then the state of Florida has a law called the Baker Act, where when you declare verbally that you are a threat to yourself or to society, the state has the right to lock you up in a psychiatric ward for 72 hours. So after they treated my injuries at the hospital, they threw me in the back of a white van, and two men drove me to a psych ward, and it was deplorable, horrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they've, they've gotten a lot sexier over the years I will say but they put me in a room um, by myself I was kind of isolated I think because of my degree of uh, belligerence, hostility uh, violence um, and they locked me in put a security guard outside my room and July 30th 2000 there I was I had blood on me, urine throw up mm-hmm. uh, hospital gown, 
Uh, they made my husband leave. They took my belongings away. They put me in a room where there was a bed and four walls locked me in. Oh, Heather. Can't even oh. imagine. Can't even imagine. Yeah. So you know, you, and that not, yeah, yeah, I just, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. No, because I want you to be able to. Yeah, so um, I just think of the, um, the, the aloneness you must have felt at that moment. Oh, yeah. And utter, awful. utter despair because here yeah, you it tried awful. it again and, wow. You, you, yeah. It didn't I, and, 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 and here's the thing. Here's the thing. That night. I would have definitely tried again and I would have succeeded because now I caused such a scene that now the city wasn't aware. The community, the community was aware. My, my, my medical records are now aware and I'm a pastor's wife. There was no way I could begin again. And that is why I do actually advocate the Baker Act. I know that people say that you can't take my rights away, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. Well, yeah. listen, I was a threat to society and I was a threat to myself yes. and I needed to be there, but it was the biggest night of hell uh, in my 46 years of living. So total rock bottom. There you are alone, slipping further into the darkness of despair, but you found a lifeline. Who or who, who, what saved you, Heather? Yeah. Well, I laid there that night and wait, dogs lay, people lie. Okay. I lied there that night. I was going to tell myself that. (laughs) I forget, I forget which word it is. Dogs lay, people lie. Um, and I, I lied there that night and I was in pain. I had a, I was in pain. I was hungry. I wanted to die, but I had no escape. So I started to, I cried. I, I cried a lot yeah. and I talked to God and cussed at him, screamed at him, shook my fist. I remember f- sh- physically shaking my fist. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of it, I think was just so painfully precious because I now look back and see that when Jesus is all you have, You have everything you need. I didn't have anyone, anything. I couldn't go anywhere. All I had was him. And if he is who he says he is, that he is omnipresent and omniscient and for us, not against us, and he has a plan for us to prosper us, not to harm us, and if he is for us, who can be against us, then he definitely proved himself to be who he says he is because of where I am today. And so that, that change started happening in the psych ward. You, did you feel his yeah. presence or did those words that you had been studying kind of start to bubble up in your soul? What, yeah. what happened you know, in there? That, that is why I always talk about my Bible because I, it, it, the Bible is the book of life. And for me, that is literal. Mm-hmm. I didn't have anything else to draw from, but all, I do remember some verses almost unearthing themselves in my belly like treasure that God had stored there when I had read them 
you know, years prior. And I started to recall these verses as I was lying there. And my verses became my prayers. If you are who you say you are, then you need to um, use this to prosperity and not to harm me. Jeremiah 29, 11. Mm-hmm. If you are who you say you are, then you need to show yourself to be for me, not against me. Because right now I feel like you're against me, God. Um, and then <laughs> I had the audacity to say, I had the audacity to make a deal and with God. And I did, I was like, you know, and I think he, I don't know if you can barter and make bets and deals with God, but maybe he gives concessions to crazy people. I don't know. But essentially I, I, something to the effect of, and if you get me out of this place, I, I will, I will dedicate, I will dedicate the rest of my life to helping people not end up here. And that, and that was 20 years ago. And I have held up to that end of the deal. That's so cool. Well, I know when I asked you to be on the podcast and talk about this powerful subject, your response was, here I am, God, send me. So yeah, 20 yeah. years later, that's, that's so yeah. powerful. Uh, hearing your story, I'm reminded of the story in the Bible in the book of Ezekiel of dry bones. Yeah. Does that resonate with you at all, Heather? Yeah, it does. You know, I, that's one of the ones that I have in my Bible. And I, it's interesting to look and see the notes that I've doodled in my Bible as as far as that text goes, because, you know, I've heard people preach on it. I've heard people sing it, but through my lens, it, it's different than the way that other people have used it through their lens, you know? Um, Because for me, my lens is often choosing to live when I don't want to. Mm-hmm. And so the, there's two things in that text, Ezekiel 37, um, that stand out to me. Is First of all, it says that um, in verse 12, he says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, um, I will open your graves and cause you to rise again. And to me, the operative word again means that this has happened more than once. And, and, and that's my plight. More than once, even these days, do I need God to open up my grave and help me to rise again. Yes. So that's just real powerful to me there. Mm. And then um, the other thing that it says is um, in Ezekiel 37, you know, he, he's speaking life. Um, and I I have to do that almost daily. I have to speak life to the enemy of death that torments the back of my head. I have to speak life to it. So yeah, it's a real powerful text, especially for someone like myself where uh, suicide has been part of the life journey. Mm, That's so powerful. (laughs) I'm going to kill my golden doodles. No, don't you dare. (laughs) <laughs> they are so naughty. You know what? You know why they're freaking out? Because there's a stupid lizard that they've been trying to catch for the last five years. And the lizard taunts them. See, the lizard comes to the back door. They go bananas, but they can't catch the lizard. Oh, my gosh. All right. Sorry. That is awesome. Thank you for I'm sharing done. that. Thank you. Yeah, for of course. That. Of course. So in talking about the enemy, um, help us understand more how you believe he uses suicide as a weapon of destruction. 
Well, the Bible clearly says that the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Period. He has no other motivation, no other purpose, no other mission. Those three things. And in my life, he has tried to steal my marriage, kill myself, and destroy my ministry. And as of today, he's working really hard, but he is not winning because I'm still married. I'm still alive. I'm still trying to honor this ministry of helping people not take their life. It's powerful stuff, Heather. Thankfully, you survived and you got better. I'd love to know kind of what your treatment looked like then and now because I'm sure it's an it's an ongoing process for the for the rest of your life. How how have you found light and and hope and healing? Great question. Yeah, thank you for asking that because I do think it's really important for people to know that it's hard work. I didn't just get out of the psych ward and pray a great prayer and you know yep. skip through the daisies and everything's great. It's it's hard work. I it's almost another part-time job, full-time when things are very, when I'm in a real difficult season. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, there are some things that I, that I do that they're just real practical, but I've been doing them for 20 years. Um, number one, Christian counseling. And in my, um, in my opinion, I don't want to say opinion. I want to just make it more stronger than the word opinion. It, it, it can't, that's not, that's not a compromising set of words there. Mm-hmm. It's got to be a Christian counselor. Has to be a Christian counselor. If you are going to take my money and speak into my life and listen to my life for an hour, you better be speaking on behalf of the one who created me. Mm -hmm. Um, I just don't distinguish those two words for anyone. Even when I speak to secular audiences, I need God created me. I need a professional that is a vessel for the Creator. So Christian counseling, um, without compromise, without excuse, very important. Number two um, is medication. And, you know, that's probably where I get more resistance than Christian counseling is, well, if you had more faith or, you know, uh, know, I've I've heard it all. I've heard it all. Yeah, Yeah, I've heard it all. Um, But for me, uh, medication um, for me is important. Now, some people, you know, that I over the years needed need anxiety medication for a season. Some people need depression medication for a season, but all of that needs to go by the advisement of the professional. You and me are not professionals in psychiatry. So we can't make the call on medicine, no medicine or medicine temporarily. Um, and, 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 and I, and, and I can say that strongly because I'm not a cardiologist either. And so if my heart was broken, I would defer to the professional on my heart on what to do with the medication. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't make the call. I wouldn't make the call. And to me, the brain is an organ not to be distinguished from any other organ in the body. And so I defer to the professional for my brain on what to do with Mm -hmm. the medication. That's very, very wise advice. Um, thank you. <laughs> and then, you know, the two other things that are non-negotiables that are more practical, um, is regular involvement at church. Um, 
there is a soul balm that only is applied when you are in communion with other believers worshiping God in unison with voice and physical body. I could not agree more. You don't get that when you sit on your couch and watch TV online. You don't get it. It's that spirit of community. There is nothing like it. I totally agree. Now, I have many, many times walked into the church to go to the service and my brain was left on the couch at home. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Your soul still needs that experience. And and so I, I you know church is really really important and 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 being there for me it's been huge. The other thing, you know, actually it does it does help get you off the couch. You know, the thing with being the official diagnosis that was given on July 31st, 2000. Um, and then, you know, I had to go through like 52 weeks of intense therapy, but uh, is, is, you know, bipolarity. Well, you know, so that means that um, I can swing from super anxious to super depressed in a super short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of times where you're just rendered lifeless and useless when you're in a darker valley of depression. Um, and you can't get out of bed. And I, and I know that, um, but getting to the church for an hour is such a victory. That is such a victory. The enemy is just so mad Mm -hmm. that, yeah, you've laid there all week and you haven't showered and you didn't go to work and you didn't take care of your home, but you went for an hour to God's house. I love it. That's good so stuff. Wow. And then I guess then, I, I've seen what your Bible looks like. So I yeah. know you got and your head your in the word all the time. Yeah. I got to have your Bible. You know, the Bible says that, like I said before, it's a book of life. So that, that to me, that's, that's good enough reason for me to be in that book because I battle death. So I do need a book of life. I do need a life manual to counteract my temptations for death so i have to have that but it's also you know the bible says it's a double-edged sword um and so that means that you that i have a weapon that can come at the enemy offensively and defensively um and with it that that that's awesome for me that i feel like i have a lot of power with god in when i have my bible that bible is awesome you have to send me a yeah. picture of it so i can share it because it's okay Okay. Let's talk about a priceless, a priceless yeah. treasure. And I actually, I actually wrote inside my Bible um, under the the if this is lost, return to me. I put my phone number and I put fifty dollars because that's how much I'm like. I will pay somebody because nobody else is gonna want this. So just freaking give it back to me. I'll give you fifty bucks. Gosh. <laughs> With inflation, you may need to up that a little bit. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. And I think also, do you find that it helps to share your story in a t- in in an effort to help other people? That's got to yeah. help. It does help. It. Well, I'm. I'm. I. I. I want to. Jesus is my best friend. 
he is my best friend. And I want to be a good friend to him. He's always been there. He has never left me, even though I have tried to leave not just the world and myself, but I've tried to leave him. When you, when you want to take your life, we call it suicide. It's, it's murder. It's the murder of myself. And though I know that has hurt Jesus so many times that that's what I've wanted to do, he has been such a relentlessly faithful, loyal friend to me in spite of it. And, and I want to be a good friend back to him. And I think continuing to choose life and to help others choose life, you know, is, is the least I can do. So powerful. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you made it. And we haven't known each other for very long, but I'm truly, truly so thankful that God spared your life. Thanks. So for those who are struggling with mental illness, I I think it's a dialogue we need to be having more. And what would you say to people? We need to get okay with saying, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. Yeah. Well, we need to, you know, I will, let me compartmentalize that a little bit. You know, there's a lot of people waving banners that we got to remove the stigma. And that's, that's good for those people. I personally do not struggle with a stigma. I I never have. I, since I was eight years old, as far back as I can remember, I, I haven't felt an affliction with stigma. I, you know, Again, I think it just goes back to yeah. So I, I my brain is a little funky, but I don't I don't distinguish that from any other ailment in any other part of my body. So that doesn't get my goat like it does other people. Wait, what was your question? Well, it's so I think you know you ask somebody, hey, how you doing? And the, the response oh, is, oh, okay. Oh yeah. yeah, I'm great. I'm great. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people are not, right. and they're acting like right. like they are okay. I'm not okay with that. I mean, I just think we need to be better at being transparent with where we really are on the inside. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I recently listened to an interview, I think it was on the Today Show, but it was talking about how we might want to consider changing our vernacular from, hey, how are you? To hey, how how's life? Mm. How's life? Mm-hmm. Because hey, how are you? Is oh great, and then that's it. We're done with the conversation. Move on, or we move on to another topic. But how's life? I think might cause a little more pause mm-hmm. with someone before they respond. And then I do think the the onus is on me whether I say hey, how are you, or how's life, to say to them when they say great, to say well, what's great. Mm-hmm. Just that one more targeted, quick question is worth it. Because when they, well, what's great? Well, I mean, I was going to get a divorce, now I'm not. Or I lost my job, but I got a new one. Well, wow, I'm so glad that I went from, hey, how's life? How are you? To, well, what's great? Because now I can celebrate something with you. And if we're celebrating the specific of something that's great, Mm-hmm. then I've just given that person ammo to keep going. Yes. But if I just say, hey, how are you? Good. And that's it. Who cares? I didn't give them anything. Yeah. And it's, 
I think it's being more aware of the people around us and being less in our heads, <laughs> you know, less concerned yeah. about what's going on up there and really tuning in to other people because I'm a very empathetic person and I can, I'm pretty good about sensing when something's off in people. And mm-hmm. I think if right. more of us were doing that, tuning outward towards the other people that you move the needle a little bit more and make life a little bit better for those around us. I've heard you mention you think there's a taboo of mental illness in the church. Let's discuss what you, what you mean by that and what, what you think that looks like. And I say that because when I, there, you know, I've just been a couple of experiences where I've had people approach me after I spoke at a, at a church where I was asked to come and speak. You know, I love to do meet and greets because I want to, I always want to hug people or wipe their tears or just somehow mm-hmm. give a physical extension of, of Jesus to them. So I always love to do meet and greet times. I've had people get, you know, in that meet and greet challenge me and say, don't you think that if you had more faith that you would be able to restore your mind? Um, and they'll throw out a couple Bible verses and I just, mm-hmm. and I, you know, and, and I don't get mad, but I do remind myself that my, probably my biggest challenging audience uh, has been church people. So how do you respond to a comment like that? Oh, I just kick him in the throat. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Him in the nose. No, no, I just did. No, I don't. I'm not offended. I'm not offended anymore. Um, the other one that I in with again within the church now is is that I take medicine. Again, that that one I've had church people single me out and challenge me or blast me on social media for that. But um, here's here's what here's what I've decided years ago that I was going to land with that kind of resistance from church people is look here's the deal. Paul had a thorn in his side, Mm -hmm. an affliction, and he asked God to take it away. And God did not take it away. And I have asked God, and I still ask God, I would would give this all up to have a brain that was more stable. I would give it all up. I would give up this podcast and everything else. But God, that hasn't been answered yet. But I sincerely pray it anyway. That being said, when I look at Paul's thorn, I'm like, but did Paul just roll over and play dead then? No. No. Paul decided, yes, I have a thorn. Yes, I ask God to take it away. Yes, I will be a good steward with the thorn if he doesn't. And so my answer to people is that. I have a thorn. I'm praying that God takes it away. I'd love to know what it's like to have a brain that doesn't battle death. But if, but until that happens, I'm going to be a good steward with it. I just, I marvel at how God uses everything he gives us for good, ultimately for good. Somehow, some way, in the midst of it, so many times it doesn't make sense. Right. But in his... Right. You know, it's like we, he, he made you, there was no mistake in making you the way he did. You know, it's a very special call on your life. Yeah. Thank you. Cause it's lonely. 
I know it's it, it can't be an easy burden to bear, but I just admire you so much for for being out there um, with your sword extended and and fighting for people like yourself. And that's that's how it works. People, yeah, people are gonna resonate with you and your story because you've you've been in their shoes. You know, you know yeah. what it's like. Yeah, yeah. I'm th- yeah I. It is. It's very low. I have found that when I talk about mental health, it's not so lonely. Most most audiences will will come alongside you. But if I have full disclosure and talk about the specific battle, what it really is, mm-hmm. it's it, it becomes very it becomes very lonely. There's a lot of people that just don't want to go there. Yeah. It's tough. Um, it's tough to talk but about, I, but it's it's yeah. it's important that we talk about it. Yeah, that's why we're here yeah. today. So, yeah. Heather, what would you say to someone who feels suicide is their only option? Mm. <sighs> yeah, number one is you. Your life isn't yours to take. Deuteronomy thirty nineteen says, "Oh, that you would choose life." that you and your descendants might live. And I think that you were brought into this world when God wanted you to be, and you had no say in it. And you don't have any say when he's ready to take you out. He's the creator. You're the sculpture. And you you need to live until the creator is ready to take you out. And I would also say this verse to them is that Psalm 118 says, I will not die. Instead, I will live to tell what the Lord has done. You, you know, you, you, you want to die. You wanna, you're battling those thoughts, but you don't really want to die. Mm-hmm. You just don't want to hurt anymore. Right. And I think if you push through and you keep going, because you didn't give up, someone looking up to you down the road isn't going to either. Um, the other thing we need to remember is when we, if I, if I take myself out, and I'll tell you what, it, the temptation, the enemy is so good at making it such a sexy offer. Mm-hmm. I will get to these places where I am utterly convinced Raul actually could find a replacement that isn't as crazy as me, that isn't as challenging as me. DJ and Andy, my boys, there's, there's a mom that, that could take my place that would be more normal. I'm telling you, these are the things that I hear in my head, but it's, they're all lies. Yes. The enemy is never going to whisper the truth. But the Bible is the truth. And the Bible says to choose life. And the Bible says, I will not die. I said, I'll live to tell what the Lord has done. And the Bible says that the enemy comes to kill, steal and destroy. But I have come, Jesus says, to give life and give it abundantly. Our life is just not ours to take. And if we would take it, there's so many victims we leave in our wake. Oh my gosh. So I have a friend, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I have a friend who lost a brother to suicide. And we were just talking about this very issue. And, and he shared, he said, suicide doesn't take the pain away. It transfers it to someone else. Yeah. 
It doesn't take, and, and, and it, it just, the true. pain doesn't go away. It's just transferred right. to, to those left in, in the wake of the unimaginable loss. Right. Yeah, I mean, am I okay with, first of all, first of all, am I okay with, and, and I'm just getting really raw with you right now. I don't think I've no. ever gotten this Please. raw in a podcast before, but um, first of all, am I okay with murdering? Because if I'm going to kill myself, I am murdering myself. Now, if I wouldn't murder someone else, why am I okay with murdering me? Mm-hmm. Second of all, am I okay with the fact that, okay, I'm going to murder myself and take myself out of here, but I am going to create thousands of victims because I did. Am I okay with that? Am I okay with causing depression? Grief, mourning, loss, sadness, weeping, maybe another suicide? Am I okay with all of that for hundreds or thousands of others because I I wanted to take myself out? So am I okay with all of that? Um, Those are important things to ask myself. Do I want to be responsible for causing somebody else who take their life because they said, well, if Heather did, I can. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I, and that's just really raw. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, like I said, we need to have these types of discussions because I think when you're, when you're in the fog and the darkness of that tunnel where you feel it's the only option, we just need to, to help people understand, but wait. <laughs> You know, yeah. what, what you're hear- hearing in your head, it's all lies. Yeah. And don't believe it that that they're going to be better off without me. That's the biggest right. lie of all. Yeah, it's so true. It, you know, one for me, you know, it's become very laser focused, the mission. One more suicide is one too many. Yes. There has been no suicide that has been worth it. And one more is one too many. And as long as I'm breathing, I've got to keep going because, because I really believe that, that if there's one more, it, it was one too many. And, you know, the other, you know, and, 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 and just to remind myself, I am the only one of me. Yes. If, if I take myself out, if I commit suicide, and there's a funeral, and afterward they're like, where are we going to find a Heather Michelle Funk Palacio? No, that's it. There will never be another one, ever. And we're not duplicated beings. We are irreplaceable. And as hard and hellacious as it is to be some of us, we need to keep being it because we're the only one of us who keeps making it. Mm. That is wild. And you have two beautiful sons since that horrific episode happened 19 years ago. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That, you know, that's why Deuteronomy 3019 is literal for me. You know, it says that you would choose life that you and your descendants might live. I went on to live through that, July 30th, 2000 day and was able to bring 
a descendant into this world in 2002 and was able to bring another descendant into this world in 2005. Had I succeeded on July 30th, I would have denied, you know, humanity the joy of having uh, DJ Palacios and Andy Palacios. Mm. And the mark they're going to make on the world. I have a feeling they're, yeah. they are powerful, going to be powerful men. Say it. Claim it for me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, teen, they're teenagers right now, so I... Yeah. yeah, pray for me. I uh, know. I I will, sister. So, uh, so in the midst of all of this, you have founded a ministry called Wonderful. Is am I saying that right? Yeah, I I was kind of it just it's like a, it started off as kind of like an online ministry. I just started mm-hmm. blogging. Um, I started blogging about uh, twelve years ago, and blogging led to tweeting, and tweeting led to Facebook. Booking and Facebooking led to Instagramming, and it all is under the umbrella of wonderful, which is the word wonderful uh, with an H Love after that. the D, but before the E. And I get that from Psalm 139 that, that says that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Oh, yeah. The essence of it is just to, to capitalize on the online world to encourage people and to help people laugh. You know, I just feel like encouragement and laughter are things that I've been able to flush out online um, in with the personality that God's given me. So that's what I do. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Wonderful with an H thrown in there. Yes. So one last question for you. So the word relevate means to inspire or uplift. What words of advice do you have for our listeners affected by suicide, depression, or mental illness? Well, that's a large audience. I'll tell you what, mental illness knows no bias. It is a universal language um, and can affect anyone, anywhere, at any time. But I would just have to go to the scriptures again in the Bible um, that if God's for me, you know, who can be against me that I, God knows the plans that he has for us, plans to prosper us and not to harm us, that we walk through the valley, Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You know what, everybody, we walk through the valley we don't live there. Yeah. Yes. And so you got to keep walking. And God knows you by name and you are his. And he's recorded every day of your life in his book. And when he's done with your book, he will be the one to take you home. Mm-hmm. And that he's collected every tear that you've dropped in a bottle. And so it's okay to struggle and it's okay to cry. Because that's in his, that's part of the book that he has for your life. And that's why he has a bottle up there with your name on it, with all the tears you've shed. Your, your pain is not in vain. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just got to, we got to keep going. It is always too soon to give up. Heather, you are a light and a gift to the world, and I am so thankful for you, and I'm so thankful for sharing your heart 
here on the Relevate podcast. Please take care Thank of you. yourself. And I just, I just love what you're doing. Keep fighting. Thank you. Thanks for, ha- thanks for having me. Okay. Hope to see you soon. Wow. I'm not sure what else I can add here except to say that your life is precious and it matters. If you're struggling with mental illness or thoughts of suicide, get help now. Tell someone. Heather's life was saved because she told her husband and he was able to get to her before it was too late. The number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. We all need to have that number saved in our phone. There's also a crisis text line. You text the word CONNECT to 741-741. Help is there. Your local church is also a great place to turn to whenever you're in crisis. For the suicide loss survivors, my heart is with you. If you've lost a loved one or close friend to suicide, you need help too. There are a number of organizations providing grief support. Save.org and AllianceofHope.org are two you can reach out to for help. Thank you again to my guest and friend, Heather Palacios, for this raw and real glimpse into the heart and mind of a fighter and survivor. I'm Rena Olson. This is Relevate.